What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. I push my glasses up a little bit by the bridge just to just oh, to prepare yeah, to tell people one. I use Arch. If you were an Arch user who was also vegan and did CrossFit, we would never get you to shut up. As a vegan, I will say it's very hard not to talk about being vegan when you sit down to eat with people. Hey, look, so I know this doesn't say that it has bread on it, the thing that I ordered, but can you just make sure that like one of the niceties that you provide isn't plopping a piece of bread on top of the thing that I ordered because it didn't have bread on it? Because that happens 40% of the time. I remember I went plant-based for a while and my mom couldn't understand what wasn't meat. It's like, it's fish. I'm like, yeah, mom, that's the meat. It's a, that is meat. Chicken is a vegetable. Yeah, chicken is a vegetable. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Steven Nunez. Along with our panel, we have Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Lars Vickman. Hello, hello. And Josh Adams. Present. And you know, Bruce is not here. We can't cut to him for sponsored content, but we did ask him what was going on at Groxio. Uh, Groxio is still working on, uh, on Ecto, full steam, uh, with focus on uh, writing layered queries, managing relationships, and managing database integrity. Just as a reminder, make sure you send your questions to us on Twitter at, at BeamRadio1, hashtag process mailbox. And if we pick your question, you get a shirt. Cool. So today I'm hosting. So I wanted to kind of pick, the, pick all of your brains about a topic that's really important to me. And it's learning to code. Now, typically when we cover this topic, we're usually looking at it from super beginner, maybe you're a comp sci major in university, or maybe you're starting to get interested in, in code, but I actually want to talk about it from your perspective. You guys are all seasoned developers. Um, what's sort of your approach? Uh, along the way, I actually want to talk about some of the, the efforts that you guys have made, the contributions you've made to education along those lines. So I'll start with you, Lars. So Lars, you've recently started doing a YouTube uh, stream called Teaching Elixir. Is that right? Yeah. And the name is very inventive. It was just tacked on to whatever whatever the first video was. It's like, yeah, what is this about? Yeah, we're teaching my friend Elixir. So Andreas, uh, my friend in that series, he's actually the guy who taught me Python at a certain point. So he's he's deeply into FP and all of that. He's very, very into Haskell, but he actually does want to work with FP languages. And as is very common, and you reach for the beam because people are actually building production software much more commonly with the beam than with Haskell. There are production systems with Haskell, I'm aware. Uh, they're not that common. Make sure so, you send all the messages to Lars about all the Haskell systems that are running out in the wild right now. He wants to hear about them. Yeah, yeah, sure. Actually, that would be fun. Um, and I really like working with Elixir, and I think he would too. He's very enthusiastic about it, but he hasn't dealt with it before. So I was like, hmm, maybe we can do some intro-ish content here yeah. where we work off of the idea that someone already knows programming, but there's like you have to pick up the syntax. That's sort of one of the first things yeah. you have to do when learning a new language is like syntax and just the basics like what's a list in this language actually yeah, uh, yeah that's interesting so that's what we're doing there and just going through so i picked elixir school because it seems like a comprehensive curriculum and uh credit to sophie and the rest of the gang doing that stuff i smacked it into live book because 
that's new and interesting and it allows us to look at and edit and run code at the same time collaboratively because we are not in the same room because no one is these days wow. so a couple of interesting things there so uh the your friend who, who you're working through this curriculum with is a functional programmer or has these concepts in it you find that you're focusing mostly on syntax are there any concepts that are unique to elixir that you find are taking a little bit hard, longer to grok or that you just kind of have to repeat a couple times overall i think he's he's picking up it up very quickly and straightforwardly but there's also very little to each of the lessons so we we schedule like a half an hour to sit down and go through one of these. And the last one was, what's the last one? Pipelines. So pipe, the pipe operator. And that's a very, very brief Elixir school uh, tutorial because they've covered a lot of the things going up to that point. And right. so we basically breezed through it quite quickly and it ended up being a 20 minute thing. But we also go on tangents and he checks whether things work the same as in Haskell or whether it works the same as he would expect. And he tries a bunch of stuff and I'm like, what are you even doing? Why would you? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Learning, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's good. Uh, but I, I haven't seen any concepts that I think he found super complicated. Mm -hmm. A few syntax things, I guess, like the um, what anonymous functions where you use the ampersand. That's just an anonymous function, right? Or is there mm -hmm. another name for that? A uh, captured function, I think. Okay. Yeah, the captcha function. That one. <laughs> that one. Um, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious to hear because one thing that I think is interesting is, in my experience from learning a new language or learning a new even programming paradigm is adopting this belief of always being a beginner. It's almost like, I think, harm coming in with a lot of preconceived notions of how things work. So you were kind of talking about that a little bit where he was trying things and you're like, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you like this? <laughs> have, you not, have you found yourself having to undo anything even though there is functional programming experience having to undo some things? Or you just let him wear Probably himself out? Probably a little bit. So the, the entire thing with, uh like okay error tuples and not having results and maybes um, coming from sort of deep Haskell. Uh, I think he expects more monads, <laughs> but it's not really unlearning. It's just learning a different thing. I think I had more to unlearn when I got into Elixir than he has because the base concepts of like, okay, what do you do with a list when you need to do things to a list? Like you enumerate it. Uh, that was not my view of things previously. It's like, no, you for loop it. <laughs> and those have slightly different effects. So I think so it was more along those lines. I hope that this series is useful to people and it seems like people appreciate it, but I have no idea if I would find it useful. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I want to open this up to the group is if you had to learn Elixir today, right? We've got Livebook, we've got Elixir School, we have, you know, the, a, a massive bodies of videos. Like, what would your approach be to picking this up as a seasoned, maybe like a whatever you were before, a seasoned OO developer? I know Josh, you had like a pretty strong Ruby background before this. Like what, what would your approach be today? 
Elixir School presently. Um, I think I think going through Elixir School. I'm not sure the status of Dave Thomas's book, but that's that's how I learned Elixir proper. And I also, if it's if it's up to date, I would highly recommend it. Um, it does a very good job. Yeah, I think the last Elixir version for that Dave Thomas book was one six. I mean, not not a tremendous amount has changed since then. So you probably you probably still get value out of reading that book. But yeah, similar to Josh. Yeah, Elixir's pretty stable. Yeah, which is a nice thing. Um, yeah, similar to Josh, I read uh, Elixir in Action, and I got probably like 30% of it the first time I read it. And then I read Dave Thomas's book, and then I went back and reread Elixir in Action, and then I got way more of it. <laughs> yeah, I found the same thing with, with Sasha's book. I, I read it. I actually read Dave's book first, and then... Um, did Elixir in Action. I was like, wow, this is way more Erlang. Because I think one of the good things about that book is that he doesn't shy away from going into using PG and using a bunch of like the underlying Erlang libraries, which is what I think makes Elixir really powerful. But if you're just coming into it, it's like, oh, it's not just syntax. And, you know, like there's, there's patterns, there's like interop, there's a bunch of other stuff. So it's like almost, it shows you a lot if you're, if you scare easily. Um, on the so note about Dave book, Thomas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so all this book learning, uh, you all would pick up a book to pick up a new language. That's, I would, that's usually the route I go. Yeah. I like, would pick yeah. up a book. I would supplement with videos uh, because I find value in seeing people both struggle with the thing that they thought would work, but didn't work. And then figuring out, aha, because it gives me an opportunity to read the error message and go, oh yeah, I would have been able to figure out that was the problem, uh, which I think is... I think being able to read an error message is like a big part of being able to learn a new thing, uh, as silly as it sounds, which is one of the reasons I like Elm hype. Um, anyway, but so I would I would supplement with videos, but I I am a skimmer and I am a very fast reader and I am very impatient. And so while I produced a lot of videos, I'm not a fan of learning uh, at that level with videos. I am a fan of keeping abreast of things with videos and learning new techniques because I'm unlikely to like a destroy all software video. I was unlikely to read a book about some 20 minute technique I would learn there. Right. But it's, it's super valuable. Yeah. That, that lines up with my view of videos as well. So most of the video I consumed learning Elixir was conference talks. So that did, I think two things, which is see a lot of, uh, see a lot of big picture code where they might not show you everything, but they show you some important concepts and there's a lot of explaining going on and there's a lot of conceptual stuff. And then there's occasional live Cody type uh, conference talks, but it also keeps the hype up. Like <laughs> it keeps me excited about it, but the way I pick up the actual, the actual language and the details of it has, like I went to the Elixir Lang guide and I, went through it and then when something kept confusing me i went back to it or when i was bored i sometimes skimmed it i think i could tackle learning a language via book if i was better at skimming books i tend not to skim books probably because of reading a lot of fiction originally <laughs> and skimming fiction is feels antithetical to me so i don't have a habit of of skimming when I read books, but I skim brutally when I read tutorials. It's like, give me your tutorial, show me exactly how to do the thing, and I will skip half of it and then backtrack to wherever I broke myself. Looking for the gist blocks. That's all I'm looking for. Just scroll, scroll. Okay, copy. Yeah. Okay, I see. 
incredibly impatient lines up with Josh there. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, similar to Josh, I need a lot of different, I need to see the same thing in different ways. A lot of times um, I try books, but then I lose, I, was, I, I lose attention of book, with books. And then I have this thing where I come back to a book, even if it's been a long time ago, like I just can't reread something. My brain is like, no, no, we read this. We know it, right? Because you read it once and you know it. So it's always a pain in the night to me, for me to um, like learn with just books. So I'll watch a video and then I'll watch a different video. I'll watch a conference talk. And like, I'm reminded of when I learned about gen servers, to me, gen servers just made no sense for a long time. Um, and then I was just told my brain, I was like, listen, we're just going to keep seeing the same thing. And we're going to write it a million times. And eventually it'll make sense. You know? I did that. I wrote it in such a way that I wouldn't get errors. Like I wouldn't pattern match on okay PID. So I would like fail silently. And then that was a lesson in itself. Um, but as of late, I've started to do a lot of um, read a book, but actually like go through the code, like actually type the thing out. Um, unless it's like just, it's just a lot of text and doesn't say a lot. Like I'll just like copy paste it. But if it's introducing a concept and like matching and then a case statement and doing a bunch of, of kind of tricky things. I find that that's really useful for me. Yeah, the few times I've grabbed a book about programming and it had like these hands-on examples and I actually sat down to sort of work through the exercises and stuff, that was useful. But I also have realized I have very little patience for it and that, that maps straight back to my experience of school. I did not have much patience for repetitive exercise back then either. When, when I was first learning programming, it consisted largely of going to the library and acquiring a book on BASIC that was like 80 games that you can write in BASIC. And then I would go and I would type those 80 games into GW BASIC or QBASIC or something on my DOS computer. And then I would run them and then they wouldn't work. And I would spend a week figuring out why I was dumb and didn't type the thing right. But it was entertaining and I learned stuff. So I have a, I have a, uh, I like typing in the stuff from books because it makes me feel 12 again. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't want that's a yeah, great. I, I definitely want to echo that sentiment of uh, reading the book and then retyping everything because it does. I mean, it does give you that initial uh, like feeling of how does this actually work? Because a lot of times, like I'll I'll skim through it and I'm like, oh, I get that. And then like maybe you know, 20, 30 pages later, it's like, yeah, you should have learned this uh, you know 20 pages ago. What's uh, what's wrong with you? I'm like, all right, maybe I should go back and, and type that in and actually understand it. Um, that actually happened to me when I was reading uh, Kubernetes in Action. Uh, you know, all that, all that YAML. I was like, no, I, I get it. I don't need to type the YAMLs. And then, uh, and then I had uh, problems and well, then I went backwards and fixed it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's these, all of these sort of techniques are, are bigger than we think, or they are more valuable than we think. Um, one thing that I sort of noticed is, so I, I used to teach beginners, like super beginners. You came off the street, you want to be a programmer, sit with me for a few months and we'll, we'll get you out there. Um, and the big thing that they face is sort of like imposter syndrome, it's massive imposter syndrome. I shouldn't be here. This isn't for me. I'm not a math head, yada, yada, all the sort of stories that people make up to not, um, you know, it's hard, but they need, you know, reasons show up. I've noticed that there's sort of like this reverse imposter syndrome that people who have in, uh, industry experience might run into. Um, so I, this is not related to program, but to music. Gro growing up, I had, uh, I played trumpet. I was a, a Horn player, it's pretty good. I know music, and music, some music theory. Um, and then for years, I've tried to learn how to play the piano. You can always see it in the back of my videos. I still can't play it. But part of the reason why is because I cannot get myself to read beginner books because I am not a beginner. 
right? The sort of like weird pride that keeps you from be, by accepting that you are a beginner. But programming, I, I'm, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I'm just gonna every day just show up page one and try again. Um, so I think all of these habits of like, I'm gonna type it in. I wanna be 12 again. I wanna type the thing in and see it. Like you see it work. I'm not gonna take it for granted. I'm not gonna assume that my preconceived concept is right. Um, I think is really valuable. And I think is a really good way to, to learn um, new programming languages and new programming paradigms. Um, Alex, so I wanna to talk to you about Elixir tips, which I love. They're great, they're beautiful, they're to the point. What is your goal with this? What's like the best thing that could happen if somebody runs into Elixir? Why don't you say what Elixir tips are? The name kind of says it, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Elixir tips was kind of my, my stab of, uh, you know, three times a week presenting some easily consumable content uh, you know, on, on Twitter. I think I also uh, republished everything on my blog. Uh, although the blog might be out of date, I could probably go update that. But in any case, the, the goal was to get to 100 tips, uh, you know, publishing three times a week. And I, I didn't set like a hard limit on the amount of code that I would have in the snippets, but no more than 30 lines of code unless uh, you know, it's a really, really important uh, concept or something like that. But, uh, and it's kind of all started out from writing in HTTP stress tester in 30 lines of Elixir and, you know, no external dependencies, no libraries, uh, just using like task, uh, async stream and HTTPC from, uh, from Erlang. And uh, I mean, it was a very, very powerful stress tester. And I used it uh, at a previous job um, where we kind of had to test a whole bunch of different flows. So you're out of the box, like Apache Bench or Work2 just wasn't cutting it because I had to make subsequent calls and, and stress the stress things out. But um, yeah, from there, just tried putting together small snippets of code with a very short uh, Twitter explanation, which was actually the difficulty because a lot of times my first pass at it would be, you know, over the, twi uh, the Twitter character limit. And, uh, you know, I'd have to go back and mess around with what I was saying, but it, it kept me concise and, you know, try to get me to stay on point of this is the concept we're trying to portray. Here it is in an easily consumable format. Favorite tip? I think, I think the, uh, the stress tester is probably my favorite, like to this day, a hundred tips later, I still love that HTTP stress tester. And I often how, look it up myself to remember how I wrote it. How can someone find the Elixir tips, Alex? Uh, so my blog is probably the best place at the moment, uh, or you can go looking through the my Elixir status uh, hashtag. Make sure we include it in the show notes. You don't tag them or anything? No, I'm terrible at that stuff. So I threw it onto the ether <laughs> and that is it. Let, let's tear this into like just ragging on Alex for not using good like <laughs> discoverability tags. <laughs> yeah, my, my SEO is, is not SEO. Uh, it's not... There's no O in it. That's what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've seen these types of tips in a few different languages. Uh, like uh, I've seen other, a friend of mine was doing it for Kotlin at some point. And uh, I really like them in that they're, they're succinct and they're brief. And that's where most programming videos lose me like I would not typically watch my own programming videos I would I would attend a live stream because I think live streams can they're mostly nice for different reasons they're not mostly about learning but they can be about learning but it's more of a so, sort of semi-social thing 
Yeah, the nice thing with the live streams is you get the uh, the discussion, and that was actually yeah. with the tips. My favorite part was when you know people would comment and be like, "Oh, you could also do it this way," and that would spark a whole different discussion. Those are my those are some of my favorite tips. Um, so yeah. maybe the live streams the same way where once you spark that conversation, it grows into something that maybe you didn't expect initially, and you discover something. Yeah, and live streams include failing in public, uh, which <laughs> me and Alex know where very well. Those YAML uh, white most, spaces. Yeah, those comments on uh, us fighting YAML for the Promix live stream we did is probably the most response I've ever received on one of the live streams. Uh, and it was mostly positive. Like, yeah, okay. It's not just me feeling like an idiot. People like to watch you suffer. Yeah, that too. <laughs> you know, but if I'm writing or producing content for someone like me, if I'm trying to target, like, what would I like to see? That's mm -hmm. typically when I do brief and tight tutorials on doing something fairly specific. So I've set up a Telegram bot in Elixir you, and included how to sort of communicate that to live view. That's a very compact package. It's, it's a brief tutorial and setting up the pedal stack. It's one of those tutorials I reference whenever I need to do it. It's my own tutorial, but I created it because I didn't see a sort of full end-to-end, -end, like, okay, these are things you need to throw in there. Now it's outdated because Tailwind keeps changing. You have to update it's it for the technology. for the the JIT now. No, now you need to update it for the CLI updates. Oh yeah, I didn't even know there was a those tailwinds. Yeah, Alex, you're two, you're so two you're two breaking changes behind. Yeah, yeah two point uh, two. No, way behind. I, they're compatible. They're compatible. Uh, it's just they improve things, and then you want them. Big problem. <laughs> yeah, well, but that's interesting. So tutorials I like small, tightly scoped things, or so one of my go-to recommendations for people learning to that want to do with something with programming and sort of, for example, no Python, I usually send them to the Django tutorial, the official Django docs tutorial, because that's a project where you get every step of the way to building a web application. Hmm. And I found it very useful when I was learning both Python and Django at the same time. So I typically learn a language along with a web framework or along with a UI framework or whatever. I want to do something with it. That's always central to me. Right. That's really interesting too, right? Not learning something for the sake of learning it, but driving towards some, some goal, right? Like I want to build a CLI tool that, I don't know, pulls down JSON, parses it, and like I want to learn options parser or whatever, just to, to actually move towards a goal. Um, how do you, in those cases, how do you deal with... Um, when learning something new, not introducing your old biases. Meaning, like if you learn Phoenix and you know Rails, you're probably going to make some Railsy uh, choices along the way because they're they kind of, if you squint, look pretty similar. So how do you uh, make sure that you are trying to be fresh the whole way, or do you not care? You're just like, you know what? If it works, I'll retrospect afterwards and be like, I don't know, like this. Is there a better way? Like, what's what's your thinking on that? Yeah, I just go. It's uh, that's forward. forward. Forward is the only direction. Progress. I can always fix that, it later or build something else later. That's my preference Josh, as you? well. Yeah, I, I, I like to just let's build an awful thing, the stupidest thing that could possibly work, and let's move forward. Because I don't want to write the code to write the code. I want to write the code to do some things. And even if I do them wrong, that's a learning mm -hmm. opportunity as opposed to, well, 
I made a bunch of stuff that that has no side effects. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely encountered this with the sort of my mentorship program where people will block themselves quite a lot with, but I want to do it right. I want to do it correctly. Session with I want to do it. Yeah. yeah. And there's no correct. Yeah, let's be very clear. There is no correct. There are sort of idiomatic ways or like, yeah, coding into the language or getting a good sort of uh, sense of taste about what's good idiomatic. And let's be very clear about like tastes diverge. <laughs> Um, there's there are, there are a number of though what so there's ample incorrect oh yeah bits, though. yeah yeah, yeah. Like, there's lots of incorrect screw up. there's no correct <laughs> uh, so it's like go forward and then when you realize something you did suck do better next time or fix it if you need to yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to kind of hone that sense of goodness. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. I might be the odd, odd man out here because uh, a lot of times, like if I'm in learning mode, I'll do it and then I'll like really aggressively like refactor and try to figure out what is the idiomatic way. So the next time I do it, I'll, I'll, I'll know to do it quote unquote right. Because um, I mean, usually they'll have a sense like, no, this, this is hard to test or this, this feels weird or, you know, this is really messy. And you're like, all right, maybe, you know, maybe I have some bandwidth at the moment to kind of play around with these concepts and try to fall upon a pattern that I like, and then, you know, lean on that power, uh, that, uh, that pattern in the, uh, the future. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have deadlines. Sometimes you have a, you know, a Jira ticket in your queue that just, that just has to move. Gotta get it out. So no time to refactor aggressively or, <laughs> or learn anything. Yeah. And I think I, I've done a bit of both in, when it comes to sort of refactoring and trying to figure out like, no, I can do this better, but it's usually triggered by somewhat what you describe. Like if I feel that this is really crappy or I'm repeating myself too much, or I have, I no longer know what this does, <laughs> then it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's unpack this or let's, let's redo it. Or I refuse to repeat myself this many times. That, uh, that number is three for me. That's usually when I look up protocols in the documentation. I'm like, is now the right time to use a protocol? No? Okay. Then I <laughs> back to behaviors. Back to behaviors. Yeah. And I think so, one of one of the reasons I tend not to use video, especially long video, for sort of learning the details of programming is that I cannot skim and I cannot copy and paste. Like you can, you usually can't effectively skim a video in the same way you would text. This is, this is why I produced uh, the text version of every single stinking video I did so that people could copy and paste because that was how I wanted to consume it and then peruse the video if I had a problem. Yeah, that was really, really useful. That's one thing I like about the Groxio approach. I would say not sponsored, but we actually are sponsored, but I generally like the Groxio stuff. You get a book, you get a bunch of videos. <laughs> Particularly the videos that Bruce does are really nice because he, he kind of, it's not super polished. I always feel like this is like a backhanded compliment, but you get to see <laughs> him mess up and that's good. I say that that's a good thing, right? You see him kind of like see things, read an error, kind of go through it. I know that when I make videos, I try to be super polished, like inspired by Gary Bernhardt, right? We're doing destroy all software with this like super like Jay-Z one take. I'm going to just start from the beginning and finish and it'll be perfect. And if it's not, I start over. Um, but then there's value in sort of in that, like, the, the rawness of that, then the the corresponding book that kind of covers similar stuff. Um, 
so yeah, Josh, you brought up your, you brought up uh, the work that you did. Uh, I'm curious about a couple of things. So I remember we, this came up on the pod before where we talked about, you talked about the reason you got into, I guess, you know, creating content around this is because you wanted to learn it yourself, right? That was one of the big motivating factors. And you got in really, really early, so early that uh, I was looking at some of the old videos, um, you know, the many, many dead libraries that you covered, old syntax, like pre-map creation. Um, records. Like you were, records, yes. I remember, I, was, I remember watching that video and then coming back to me being like, oh, wait, I don't need deaf record anymore, right? Records, I, just, I, had yeah. a, I had a library I was using in a talk and uh, records were removed the day before the talk. And so I had to update it in the hotel room at like 2 a.m. because I didn't want to be like, hey, look, you'll never be able to use this. Uh, yeah, so what was that? What was your experience like to, to figure, you know, to make those videos, right? Because did you realize that you, um, did you realize that you were creating something that was having a big impact on the community? Was that your goal? When did you know? And then how did you learn uh, the quote unquote right way? Or did you not care? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I stole judiciously. So uh, the two, you mentioned Ruby Tapas. Uh, sorry, no, you mentioned Destroy All Software. Destroy All Software and Ruby Tapas were both things that I traveled a lot for conferences at the time. And if I was in the hotel room, I probably had one of those two things on as sort of background noise while I was doing whatever work I had to do because life is terrible. Um, so I really appreciated both of those. And uh, so when I started Elixir Sips, I completely stole, I mean, I asked him, but I stole Avdi Grimm's entire setup. So like he had a processor that he used that provided all the distribution of the videos and the RSS feeds that are authenticated and all that. So I just used them. And then uh, he also had like a middleman site that he used for his marketing site. So I built a middleman site and I based it entirely on, I have some Ruby, like I have a, I have a list of Ruby objects and I just update that as like static data that drives the site. And that was like, that's the whole of the technology behind it for a couple of years. And it was very useful for me to kind of get started on that and just like see what's out there. I think it drove a lot of interest in libraries, which wound up pushing the community forward and, and have, you know, get more contributors. So, but, but Steven, you, you sort of said when I do my videos, I haven't seen you do a video. I haven't seen you release a video. What's well, this about? Well, so I, I did, I did do more videos when I was teaching Ruby, like kind of like quick um, bursts of, of just uh, purely the topic, but uh, I am working with the great Sophie De Benedetto on a course, which we're very excited about. And I already talked too much about it, but it's, it's coming. It's gonna be very exciting. It may be related to what we're talking about today. Maybe, maybe not. And it's gonna confirm your status as the Jay-Z of Elixir videos. That's what I definitely want. Uh, the takeaway from this is Steven is the Jay-Z of Elixir videos. All right, you heard it here first. So I wanna try kind of transition to a little bit forward facing, right? So Josh, you did the Elixir tips for doing the Elixir tips. We've got teaching Elixir. What is, what's missing, right? I heard a couple of things. Lars was talking about this idea of kind of project-based sort of short project-based uh, tutorials or even videos of like, let's build a Telegram bot, let's integrate with Slack. Right? What do you guys think would have the most impact? Knowing what you know now, put, having put the things out you put out in the world, what does the world need right now? Um, Josh, I'll go to you first. I, I don't know. So 
Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what they need. I know that I still feel like there's a paucity of information or like uh, opportunities to, to have sort of tutorial level content on more advanced topics, but that's always a problem and the audience is not there for it. So I understand like why that is. Um, I do, I dislike the amount of like the distribution of content types. It's like almost everything is for beginners and a dramatically less is for like people in the sort of mid, mid, middle of the pack uh, in terms of their tra uh, trajectory over the course of learning this thing. And then like, there's almost nothing for advanced stuff. There is like Sasa's book is, gets to be all of those. It gets to straddle all of that, but there's not, there's not much. So I was, I was I trying to, to fix that. I was trying to cater some of the blog uh, content uh, that I was writing more for intermediate slash advanced. Uh, and actually it does, it does pretty well. Like uh, a lot of like the Broadway and RabbitMQ searches that you bring up uh, like a lot of the posts that I put together. And I mean, I, I think those are more intermediate slash advanced, but uh, yeah, like Josh said, uh, like a lot of the beginner stuff gets way more traction than the, uh, the more advanced stuff, just because like a lot of times if someone's looking for these tools, they might already have an idea as to how to use them um, versus somebody just trying to get into it, if that makes sense. I think the topics also begin sprawling very, very wildly when you start to get into the advanced side, you start to, <clears throat> you start to have to deal with a lot of the sort of operational concerns and like, okay, what kind of architecture are you actually on? Because like, if I cover working with the RabbitMQ or if I cover working with Kafka or I'm work covering how to set up a good Elixir system on top of Kubernetes, it very much matters what what's already there and every system turns into some kind of snowflake there's definitely content you could do in in that sort of space but it becomes a little bit tricky to find as you said the audience isn't there for it and you keep slicing that audience more thinly it's like no but we're we're on heroku so we won't deal with anything pg related okay or uh, we're running on, uh, we're running uh, like uh, horizontally scaling and don't do Erlang distribution. So all of this goes out or we are deep on Erlang distribution, but we don't use this part or that part, or we don't have a RabbitMQ or we don't need a message queue. Like things just diverge into this, uh, like <laughs> programming and oddly specific fractal. Yeah, I, I am happy to say if someone focused on, hey, let's assume that you're using distribution and let's model some complicated problem problems with long lived processes that store their state out somewhere and go get it back if they need to spin up and all that stuff and how you handle something akin to a global registry. That's I feel like that covers a lot of projects and that's a piece that's missing. So like there is all this divergent yeah. stuff on the edges, um, but but that's a piece that I think is actually missing. You should take a look at my, uh, my one of my more recent blog posts because I do that ex minus the distributed part. So it's, I think, I can't remember the name of the article, but it's like OTP is the core of your application. And it does kind of that where it's like you're you're primarily acting or you're pr primarily interacting with a, uh, a gen server, which is backed by the database. And you're trying to keep everything, uh, all, all the actions with the database atomic. So you're using uh, like handle continues after your handle calls so you can respond by, back quickly. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that was a two-part article, and it, it did blow up in terms of content. It was it was a lot of stuff that I tried to stuff in there, and uh, yeah, like you said, Josh, I could have easily gone to you know distributed stuff, but that gets yeah, even, even more even just mentioning handle continue is like that's that's not mentioned very frequently. Yeah, and little did you know, you could also you, know, you could use handle continue everywhere. You could use it after a cast, after a knit, after handle call. Yeah, I knew you could use it useful. after. Yeah, I thought uh, that was only for init, but it makes sense that it would be would be great for uh, for calls and casts actually. So that's neat. I need to look at that. Invaluable, I would call yeah. it. Yeah, very very yeah. good stuff. Um, I think the, the the content that I would like to see more of. So I'm reminded of kind of what turned me on to Elixir in the first place. I've, I've talked about this on the the show before is uh, the, the peep code screen, screencast uh, called uh, Meet Elixir. Um, just the way Jose worked with the language and did concurrency and just like, it was small, but it was incredibly powerful to kind of make you say, there's something here. I wanna be a part of whatever this is. And that's why I kind of like Alex's work because I think the tips are small enough where you're just like, oh, wow, that's really elegant. An elegant way of doing that. Like if I had to do that, I would be this sort of like, you know, soliloquy of code and all sorts of other like uh considerations but you know failure you know supervision trees and all this stuff makes this makes all those problems go away that's amazing um i'd also like to see more use of live look um for a lot of this stuff like lars you're Jeez. using yeah you're using live book for uh you know teaching teaching elixir but i'd love i'd love to figure out a way to have that be the way elixir school is full stop Right? Like, can you go in, like, just play around with it, poke it, you know, um, share snippets, forum posts, like, sort of like more integration with that. Um, so I think I want, I'm going to try to figure out how to get Livebook to support more languages too. So, I, you know, <laughs> selfish means. Um, uh, and yeah, I think that, that those are the two big ones for me. I think more interactivity for this great beginner content that we have. I think Livebook is like a secret weapon for teaching. I think it's going to be great. And then also more conversion. Um, Tool. I think there's so a big like, challenge. Cool yeah. yeah, I think there's a big challenge with Livebook, just in that it's hard. It's hard to secure, right? So you can't you really put it on a, a server box, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, right. So that means someone will need to pull it down. I think that's where it sort of fits perfectly for nerves, where you like you need to put something on the yeah. damn device to use it. Um, so having an image that starts up and provides you a live book is pretty great because then you can get both documentation and code snippets for interacting with the hardware. Right. And now that Livebook just received inputs, uh, like inputs fields in the live book, that'll be even more interesting. And like the animation and plotting stuff is, is, seems pretty good. Uh, but I mostly care about the input part. But yeah, I'm not convinced about how to sort of leverage Livebook to its fullest. Something I've definitely considered is setting it up for, if I, if I was running a course with a limited number of people, I wouldn't be too worried about someone sabotaging. And then like, yeah, okay, set up a server, put it on there, tear it down after. Someone needs sandboxed live book as a service. And then people that are sharing content need to just produce like the cached output of the thing. And if you want to go mess with it, you click the button, they spin up a sandbox and somebody pays for it. I don't know who. 
I assume All some right. VC somewhere that's trying to subsidize a bad idea. I will gladly help that VC see the see through his vision, whether it's been validated or not. <laughs> uh, and then I think the last bit that I think I would like to see more of, and I think Bruce is doing a really good job over at Groxia with this stuff, is a lot of the design stuff. I think that the one thing that is sort of bad about coming from another language we talked about is like the idea of your bias is coming in. Um, and then if you kind of go halfway, it's very possible to write basically writing object-oriented. What was that? Code that is very tangled and confusing if you kind of kind of halfway get it into yeah. the state that you want to get it into, which is fine if it's small, but eventually it gets big. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of like, it's very easy to redo object orientation with extra steps in Elixir. If you're just like, well, this module is my state and I pass it in and it has behavior and they're separate and this is this is functional programming, right? This is this is how you tokenize things. This is how this works. No, why are you also mad at me? Um, and I, I like that we're starting to get more on that topic of like, how do we break things out? How do we separate, you know, uh, you know, our data? How do we use that data as a token across multiple modules? Like this, sort of like teasing that apart from people, um, from people's heads is, I think, a really powerful thing that I want to see see more of. Yeah, um, if people would just put a Jira card in that says, find a thing that's bad and refactor it into a pipeline once per week, their project would get nicer. Yes, yes, I agree. When I discovered like the tokenizing pattern, I was just like, this is so much better, so much easier to understand, but you need to kind of like, you know, see it a couple of times. And then that's something that we're, we're still working on, still working on. Yeah, I actually tried something where I did a live stream where I was sketching on my iPad around so a system I'm considering building sort of a product idea and just like okay how would I structure this what are the different parts the tricky bit is finding a really good explanation or providing the most useful perspective I think because they're like <laughs> representing any system as a sort of sketch or map or you will always only be describing one perspective or a few perspectives. You won't cover all that it is because that's just a matter of zoom levels and it's all, it's all a fractal. So I was pretty happy with doing that. It's definitely a format I'm happy to do again, but I also wasn't entirely thrilled with my explanation. So either I need to do more prep or the design is hard. <laughs> I think it's a little of both. A little of both. Yeah, possibly. I also think like uh, when it comes to learning content and consuming sort of teaching materials, I think you need to put a limit at some point and just write code, just build things. Just do the Build something broken. Yeah. Build something broken and then keep fixing it. My expertise. It. <laughs> yeah. Put me in, coach. Yeah. I've definitely seen people who get really enthusiastic about sort of Elixir and Elixir content, but, but like, yeah, I do Java in my day job. Why do you do Java in your day job? Well, I don't have much experience with Elixir. It would probably be hard to get a job with that level of inexperience. Like, but if you spent all the time you're spending on consuming the content about learning Elixir, <laughs> you would know Elixir. And I tend to want to put 
push people into practice at any like yes consume the learning materials yes immerse yourself in the community immerse yourself in what's going on uh, sync up with the pulse of the thing but also use it otherwise it's sort of pointless at least to me but i like building buttons yeah do it till it hurts and then stop and like why is why is this so bad or keep going until it hurts. Uh, that is oh, i mean write, it's a really write tests write tests yes just, just please write tests I will, I will say that, that I, you know, go do all the things, experiment bad patterns, but write some tests. I think that having tests at your back really help you out when you try to get creative or you finally figure out what protocols are for and you can go back and try to try to use them. Knowing that your code still works is just like another relief um, while you're learning. All right, well, that's our time for today. Thank you everyone for the awesome discussion. I wanna take a moment to thank our sponsor Graxio uh, for supporting the podcast and these discussions and we'll see you next time.